Thanks for listening to the AMPA podcast. I'm your host, Omar Moalem. Every year, the Alberta Magazine Publishers Association holds an annual conference bringing to Calgary some of our industry's best minds in editorial, design, marketing, and advertising. Leading up to it, I'm interviewing keynotes that you can meet there on March 16 and 17, sharing tips and wisdom and just talking shop with them. And in this episode, I'm talking with John Bennett, truly a writer's editor who worked at The New Yorker for 40 years, from the copy desk in 1975 to his retirement last November. Seymour Hirsch, Oliver Sacks, and Lauren Collins are just some of the writers who worked most closely with John. Today, he teaches profile writing and magazine writing at Columbia School of Journalism, and he joins me via Skype from New York. John Bennett, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Now, I assume that your retirement late last year was was well-planned and not a disillusioned result of the events that unfolded on November 8th. Since then, we're seeing an assault on the press from the White House and other early clues that Trump plans to run it like an autocracy. So what is it like for you to retire from The New Yorker at this particular moment and watch from the sidelines? Well, there are no sidelines uh, in the age of Trump. Uh, I was looking forward to reading Proust uh, and pursuing other eternal verities uh, and and not becoming a geezer who watches uh, cable news all day. Uh, and I managed to do that during the uh, the period between the election, the election and the inauguration, because on the ground that it was all noise and nothing mattered. But once Trump became president, it, it's impossible uh, not to to obsessively uh, concern oneself with the news. I, I feel like a, a home invasion has has occurred. Uh, you you can't not pay close attention to the ramblings of a man who's who's holding your family and your children uh, and your country uh, a hostage. And, and you're students as well. You teach journalism at uh, Columbia University. This must dominate classroom discussions. It does. And it it makes them uh, all the more aware of the uh, uh, sclerotic nature of journalism, because the journalism that we practiced and taught for in my lifetime, which to the students already seemed uh, old hat to some degree, now seems just just useless almost in the in the face of of, of Trump. It's it's we're all I think all journalists are trying to figure out how to deal with with a situation that that's uh, really unparalleled. Thinking back to the election coverage, if there was any mainstream media that predicted such an improbable outcome for American politics, I think it was the New Yorker. The commentary was the commentary online was as good as the commentary in print and and leading up to the election, it was fierce about exposing Trump's inadequacies. Um, and yet here he is. He's the forty fifth president of the United States. What, what does this tell you about the relevance or irrelevance of contemporary media and the value of journalism today in the face of alternative facts? We, we ran a piece by Evan Osnos, uh, I think in October, uh, which I edited, uh, President Trump. Uh, and the illustration was a, 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 a photo illustration of, of Trump in the, in the Oval Office. And readers just saw the illustration and went insane. That it, it was such a frightening spectacle. And what the piece did was to try to say what Trump could actually do as president. And what it concluded was that most presidents try to keep most of their promises and that uh, he could do uh, a certain number of things. Covering Trump is is difficult. Evan did a piece for us a year and a half ago, I think in July of 2015. He was working on a piece about the uh, the white nationalists, uh, the right wingers, and then the Trump phenomenon happened. And as he was interviewing these uh, essentially Nazis, they were just 
enthusiastic about Trump to a, to a, to a universal and, and uh, uh, ubiquitous degree. So the, the point was what happens when tr the Trump phenomenon occurs and how do various uh, vectors in society uh, react to it. Uh, so uh, we, we were quite proud of that piece. As to whether journalism can... Uh, can stop Trump. No, journalism can't stop Trump. I mean, uh, it can do its part, but uh, the notion that totally up to journalism to, to, to save us from fascism, I think, is, is uh, uh, overwrought. Uh, but at the same time, uh, as journalists, we have to do everything we can uh, to preserve the, the values uh, of the Enlightenment, basically prevailed since the 18th century, but uh, sometimes at a high cost, uh, like the Second World War. Do you feel at all that contemporary media has lost its value? Trump is the best thing that could happen to journalism, uh, just as wars are, are good for journalism, because people suddenly uh, uh, have are, are truly, truly interested in the news. I mean, the best thing that could happen for journalism is, uh, is just a slow approach of a death comet uh, over a period of years. Newspapers would do great in, in those circumstances. And certainly the age of Trump is, is like that, in that people, as you know, subscriptions are going up. Mm -hmm. uh, with the Times, uh, the New Yorker, uh, the Washington Post, uh, uh, journalism has become necessary. It had fallen into a, a lifestyle uh, coma, essentially, uh, before and uh, since uh, the initial uh, excitement of 9-11 has worn off. And now we're back again. Journalists are needed, and then um, uh, the public wants uh, good journalism. The part of the public that, you know, is the 60%, I suppose you would say, who, who aren't Trump people. Well, journalists are needed and, and great editors are needed, too. Um, you'll be coming to Calgary next month, not to discuss a global tragedy, but to offer a masterclass on becoming a better editor. Uh, Elizabeth Drew, Seymour Hirsch, and Oliver Sacks are just a few of the writers who have proudly called you editor. And Sasha Freer-Jones said about you, there are only three or four editors on the planet as good as John. His touch is so gentle and his advice so carefully considered that you never feel the scalpel when he excises a third of your draft. So I, I must interrupt you on that. Yeah, never take any writer's praise of an editor very seriously. <laughs> Editors are, are, are like shrinks. Uh, the clients have to project impossible wisdom onto them. Uh, otherwise, the, their world collapses. Uh, writers are the most vulnerable people in the world. Uh, a writer's like a patient in a hospital wearing one of those gowns that's, that's open in the back. And, uh, an editor's the doctor walking behind, assuring him that uh, nobody can see his ass. And that, that must be especially true at The New Yorker, which is such an intimidating venue. I mean, do you have to manage their nervous systems just to get the work out? Uh, sure. Uh, very few writers are, are, are naturally great writers, uh, even at The New Yorker. Uh, most writers I work with are, are really B-list writers who somehow produce A-list work. They do it by marshalling the forces of panic and hysteria and visceral upheaval. Uh, they, they adrenalize themselves essentially, to produce writing of the first order. Uh, it's, it's not a pretty process. Writing is, is an unnatural act. The, the psychic cost is quite real. Uh, and and they, they really suffer. And it's, it's not a pretty sight. Uh, but the work they produce is brilliant. These are the writers I love, actually. So being on the cusp of a meltdown actually helps produce good work. I, I think we all uh, do better when we have a lot of adrenaline and, and fear. We're, we're all highly motivated. That's why so many writers procrastinate and do all these things that writers do, all these, these neurotic, pathetic things, uh, because 
that's how they get to that place where where the breakthrough happens and somehow the the juices and the synapses uh, come together in, in some way it, it's a form of hysteria really it, it has to take a, a special interpersonal approach though from an editor how do you get greatness out of them they want to do it they don't need me there my job I think uh, with that period is is just talk them through it talk them off the ledge when they give me copy it's always great copy no matter what it's like because i've got to get them to finish the piece before i can even begin to address the piece and then an editor's job also is to to protect the writer from other people at the magazine or newspaper who who are coming at them uh, writers are, are so vulnerable what they do is that they're exposing themselves and by that I mean that they're exposing themselves to ridicule their writing in the what I call the fog of authorship uh, everything is unclear they're not sure of what's working what isn't working uh, which phrases work and and uh, I compare writers to, to Civil War generals uh, in, the, in the fog of battle who, who don't really know which reinforcements are about to arrive. They don't quite know where the enemy uh, has planted his troops up on the hill. And editors are like Civil War historians who will say, well, my God, Longstreet should have moved his, his forces here, and then this would have happened, and this would have happened. It all seems clear to an editor uh, because he's, he's outside that, that fog of authorship right. uh, that, that besets almost every writer in the writing process. So how do you approach that first draft of a long piece, which can be chaotic and muddled? Oliver Sacks said about you that whenever I am chaotic and muddled, John Bennett can see his way through my story so well. I'm wondering, what are you looking for when you get a first draft like that? Are, what, what sort of, what are the weak points that you're looking to strike, and how do you know when it's just not working at all? When I read the piece, uh, I read it with my pulse. I don't take notes particularly, but I keep a vivid memory of how I felt at each stage of the piece. Uh, and if I'm reading something and my pulse is is beating, I, I know that that's good and that's that's interesting. If I'm starting to skim, I know it's boring, uh, and. When I edit a piece, uh, I, I rarely send pieces back. I, I, I usually just try to rearrange them and restructure them and, and put them together uh, myself. And um, I do it very quickly, very intuitively. I, I find that if you analyze too much when you're editing uh, on a long, long uh, fact piece of, say, ten or 15,000 words, uh, you just fall through the ice. You have to skate quickly and just know and almost intuitively, this is interesting, this works, I like this, I like this. And then you just slash out the stuff that where you're skimming. And then you take the parts that are left and, and you move them around and try to get them in, in, in a, a good order, often a chronological order. Once I've done that, there'll be holes. Things that I will have taken out of the piece I will see are essential to to the piece. You need that information. And then I'll go back and find that information and try to find a way to put it back in the piece so the piece works. That's basically the way I would edit a, uh, a 15,000 word piece. You're also known to just take it apart and make it chronological if it's not chronological already. I noticed even your bio on the AMPA page is chronological when every instructor who ever taught business communication says not to, to get to your highest accomplishment and most recent credit first. So what is it about the chronological structure for you that's so foolproof as an editor and I guess as a reader? 
the chronology uh, can be applied at different levels. The, the entire piece can be chronological, but that's that's rare that that, that that happens. You don't start the piece at the very beginning and, and end at the end. Usually you have sections, and within those sections, chronology uh, uh, is often helpful. Uh, and even within sentences, uh, much of my editing task work is, is taking sentences that a writer worked really hard to make complicated, dependent clauses and little flashbacks and so forth. And I look at it and try to determine what order the things in that sentence actually happened. And I'll rearrange the sentence so that this happened, this happened, and then this happened, rather than a sentence like uh, uh, a being about to occur and B having happened the previous year, a C ensued. I get sentences like that often. Uh, they take a lot of work and ingenuity on the part of writers, and um, it's, it's my sad task to just undo them. To and, go and B, A, C. Whatever. Go yeah. the first thing, the second thing, and yeah. the third thing. Uh, so it's on the sentence level. It's on the paragraph level. It's on the level of a section of a piece. Uh, and it can be uh, the um, you know the entire piece, but but usually uh, different sections uh, are in different time frames. So it's not that I'm advocating a straight from beginning to end chronology for a piece, but just be aware of chronology within the piece and, and avoid awkward, clumsy Latinate sentences uh, that that clunk up that 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 order, that natural storytelling order that, that we all understand. And it's it's not just the John Bennett touch. I had the uh, a similar experience working with Jeremy Keene, who's now at Bloomberg Business Week, when I worked with him on a NewYorker.com piece. That that whole process was, was um, fascinating to me. I had the pleasure of seeing the inner machinery of the New Yorker there. And there were a few things that impressed me. And one of them was just how well communicated the process was. You know, I was told once we have a draft, this person will see it, then this will happen, then this, and here's the link when it goes live on this day around this time. How important is it for you as an editor to just communicate well the process to the writer and, and, and make sure that there are no surprises for them? That's important uh, with a, a new writer. Most of the writers I work with know the process well because they, they've been through it. Uh, but, and at the New Yorker, in any case, the process is, is incredibly complicated because so many hands uh, apply themselves to a piece of writing. Uh, my, one of my first jobs at the New Yorker was as a Dickensian job at the time that no longer exists called Collator. And what, what happened is I would get proofs from the editor of the piece, the fact checker, from uh, the grammarian. Uh, from uh, the editor-in-chief, William Sean, and from the lawyer. And then uh, the editor of the piece would look at all their different queries, each on a separate you know, sheet, and uh, put a check mark next to the ones he wanted to accept, because sometimes they contradicted each other. And it was my job to copy all of that onto one master proof that would go uh, to the printer. This was the greatest job uh, an aspiring editor could ever have, because you uh, saw what other editors did uh, and you not didn't just see it you had to actually hand copy it onto something so it became a part of your body uh, and and you learned all their tricks every editor had a different style had different uh, uh, hobby horses uh, had different fixes for for typical problems and and you could just steal their stuff and, and learn it sadly today we, we do almost everything on computers and so there, there's no real paper trail uh, anymore for uh, 
for, for younger staff members to, to go look at. Uh, it was a great job. All these proofs that I would uh, copy wound up in a box in the makeup department and all the young people w would go and, and, and look at that box and just study everyone's proofs and say, mm. see why uh, William Shaw and the editor-in-chief thought one particular remark was tasteless or, or, or inappropriate or he thought that some mm -hmm. term was a cliche that we should avoid or fad terms. Uh, it was a great, great educational process. Regardless, there is such a culture of diligence and care at The New Yorker uh, one of the things that I was heartened to see with the online piece that I did was just how thorough of a fact check there was to the point where my piece got extra reporting. And again, this is not something I, I expect for an online story, usually for a print one, but not online. And I was ever so thankful for how supportive the process was. I'm wondering how how do you foster that that culture of diligence, especially when you're running some 10 stories a day on top of the weekly magazine, all of it at the in the highest class of English journalism. It's just there. We, we've, it's always been, that's always been true at The New Yorker. For writers who've never expo been exposed to fact-checking, it can be a really freaky process, and we try to make it not that. Uh, the, the truth is, most of the things we read in print are filled with errors. They're usually minor errors. Uh, they're not huge, big errors, but they're there. And so... Uh, Writers, when they write a first piece for The New Yorker, often feel almost, they almost blush because they've made four mistakes on a page or whatever, which is, is common. Uh, and, and they may be minor mistakes, but, but they're still mistakes. And so we, the purpose of the fact checker, they're not, they're working with the writer. Uh, it's, it's not an antagonistic uh, process at all. The fact checker is, is there to help the writer and help make the piece uh, more accurate and, 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 uh, even to help make it more clearer, too, if the fact checker can can, can offer a suggestion that, that clarifies a uh, fact that seems muddy or, or just impossible to, to, uh, to follow. After 40 years, you've certainly got a lot of advice for other editors, but I was wondering, who were the editors that guided you, and what was the advice they gave you about being a better editor? Uh, the editor-in-chief, when I was hired, who was the man who really formed the modern New Yorker, was William Sean. His advice, in fact, his order... His mantra was, was, we don't improve pieces at The New Yorker. We don't make them better. And that's sort of a paradox, I suppose. Uh, what he meant by that is the piece is the writer's piece. And I found this to be true. Even if I have to fix every sentence in a piece in order to make it publishable, what makes that piece work, what makes... Uh, a piece great even, it's what the writer brought to it. The writer's moral vision, the writer's accumulation of facts, uh, the writer's ability to, to see things that, that the rest of us aren't seeing. So the, the editor is not the author, is what I'm trying to say. No matter how heavily we may edit something, uh, we're only doing it in the interest of making what the writer is trying to say stand out with more clarity. Another editor, Robert Bingham, uh, managing editors, said, uh, when in doubt, take it out. And that's usually pretty good advice uh, when you're editing something. If you're not sure, if, you, if, it, if, it, if it troubles you a little bit, you don't know, uh, take it out. And then David Remnick, uh, the current editor, uh, eight years ago, when Barack Obama became president, he told the staff, we must always keep up the pressure on those in power. And I think that's that's great advice for any any journalistic endeavor. And that must be something that you're 
you're repeating with your students today. Sure. Oh, sure. Uh, it's really important uh, to do that. Yeah. John, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Looking forward to meeting you in March. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to meeting uh, the editors who are coming uh, to Alberta and learning uh, from them. I think uh, they'll have uh, a good deal to, to teach to me as well. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. If you want to learn more from John, come to Calgary on March 16 and 17 for the 2017 Alberta Magazine Conference. He'll be presenting a master class on becoming a better editor and doing a Q&A with Monocle's Chris Frey. Conference passes are on sale right now at albertamagazines.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to check with the AMPA website or subscribe to iTunes for more interviews with our industry's finest. Ciao for now.